0: The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Could you uh, please, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn in them uh, three places this evening, Ephesians chapter 2, Matthew, the Gospel, chapter 22, and Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through uh, 18. We're in this series uh, with Reformation. Uh, here we still stand. And uh, this evening we're going to talk about uh, love and uh, this idea of what do good works look like. And uh, you might think it's strange talking about works within the context of the Reformation because isn't that what you know, the Reformation was about? You know, not talking about good works anymore, not being saved by works, but by the grace of Christ. Um, But we're going to talk this evening that it is about works, but just not our works. It's about the works of the Lord Jesus, and then what is the proper understanding of how uh, they flow out of the grace uh, given to us in Christ Jesus. So Ephesians chapter 2, begin there, please. And note, right at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, what is it that we are capable of? It says, as for you, you were... What's the word say? Dead in your transgressions and sins. Just think about that. What can a dead person do? Absolutely nothing. Has to be made alive. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. But look, verses 4, 5, and 6 has some really good news, which speaks about, but God did what? God made us who were dead, but God made us alive in Christ. Jesus. Dead in our transgressions and sins, but God is the one who, in Christ, through his death and resurrection, makes us alive. And then these uh, verses that maybe you recognize as being the core, then, of the Reformation message. For it is by grace you have been saved, right? So if you're dead in your transgressions and you're made alive by Christ, you can't do anything. It's a work of God, work of Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And usually we, I think, stop at that verse. But there's this verse 10, which is a beautiful little verse that gives us a great uh, sense of doing God's work within this kingdom. For, let's read it together, in fact. For we are what? God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has some good works for us to do, prepared in advance for us to do. And so we could say, you know, the Reformation really highlights this, um, this, um, this truth. We are saved by grace alone through faith in the work of Christ alone. So it is about works, right? But whose works? work of Christ. Through faith in the work of Christ alone. But let's tag something to that. But grace, we will say, and faith in the work of Christ are never alone, are they? A good tree bears good fruit. And so good works will, will follow. So we can talk about good works within the church. We just have to put them in their proper perspective, and we first talk about our lack of ability to do that, dead in transgressions and sins, but we'll talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and his good work, and how in faith that becomes our work, and then flowing out of that is these wonderful works prepared for us to do before the creation of the world. So let's describe the perfect neighborhood. If you were to live in the perfect neighborhood, in fact, I do this when I talk to somebody who doesn't give to me the reference point of the scriptures. And I said, okay, well, we won't talk about the scriptures at all, but let me describe something to you. You tell me what you think. You know, would it be a, a wonderful place if when a young man meets a young woman and they stand before each other and their friends and family and they pledge to one another their faithfulness, you know, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death parts them, Would that be a wonderful start to a relationship? And what do you think they say? Ah, that'd be great. Well, what if that family now moves into a neighborhood and they have some children? And within that family, would it be good that there is honor and respect in that household between the parents as well as between the children, and so the children aren't unruly and causing all types of trouble, thinking that they run the house and the parents aren't overbearing. Would that be a nice family environment, you know? Uh, Mom and dad loving one another, kids respecting their parents. Would that be good? Yes. How about when you live in that neighborhood, things go a little sideways with neighbors, right? But you don't have somebody coming over to your house and taking vengeance on you. But rather, You know, you help and befriend one another. Or that your possessions, when you have something wonderful and beautiful that's come into your life, that your neighbor doesn't try and take those things away from you, but rather helps you keep them. Or when your name is talked about, perhaps, over by the community pool, and some rumors start to fly that the neighbor steps in and says, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe we don't have the whole picture on this. Let's put the best construction on it and defends your reputation. And that everybody in the neighborhood is really content with what they have. In fact, they're not only content, they're happy for another person when they receive something and they celebrate with them. Um, Would that be a good place to live? What do you think? Sure, right? No coveting. And let's just say there is a, uh, in this neighborhood, uh, the acknowledgement of a higher power, and that you then as neighbors would acknowledge this higher power of this God as being only, and that you don't curse him or swear by his name, but rather you call upon him, and every trouble that you have, he's the first one that you run to, and you devote yourself to the study of who he is and the gifts that he gives to you, that'd be a pretty good place, right? Perfect neighborhood. Without quoting one verse of scripture, what have I just shared with you? Ten Commandments. It's written in the law the natural law of the heart. Everyone. I don't think there's anybody that you would meet would disagree and say that would be a pretty good place to live. If everyone behaved in that way, that form or fashion, boy, you know, that'd be loving one another. That'd be, that'd be a great place to live. Well, turn to the second place, Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Basically, Jesus is asked that question. So tell me about this neighborhood, Jesus. Sum it up for me. What, is it, what does it look like? If you could, tell me what the, the greatest commandments are. And so Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked. He says, there, he said, someone comes to him and says, Teacher, so which is the greatest commandment in this law? Jesus replies, Just read it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment to which Jesus follows it up with the second. And the second is like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, all of the scriptures, all of the law, and all of the prophets, they hang on those two commandments. A perfect neighborhood looks like this. One word. How could you summarize it? It would be a place of Love. Love. Love for who? Well, love for God and love for the neighbor. Well, what does that look like? Well, the first three commandments thou shalt not have any other gods, don't curse or swear by God's name, remember the Sabbath day. Those three of the Ten Commandments deal with the love for God, and the other seven deal with the love for the neighbor honor your mother and your father, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Don't defame your neighbor. Don't covet. Jesus in his ministry does it one more. If you ever are interested, you can read this in Matthew chapter 5. He confronts the religious of the day who think that they've kept the commandments outwardly. And so he says to them, well, you've heard it said that, you know, you shall not commit adultery. And their pride comes up and says, we haven't committed adultery. And what does Jesus do? He takes that commandment and he opens it up and burls deep down into it and says to them, but I tell you that if you even look, what, lustfully at a woman in your heart, you've broken the commandment. It's just not outward. It's inner, isn't it? That's the perfect neighborhood. Now, what happens when I move into that neighborhood? I, as the scripture describes me, dead in my transgressions and sins, an enemy of God, hostile to God, corrupt in my nature, sinfully, turned in upon myself, selfish. What happens when I move into that neighborhood? I cause havoc, don't I? So do you. We move into this neighborhood, and all of a sudden this sinful nature, which we never leave, seems to have this reign Well, the Ten Commandments come in and um, if you ever went through catechism class there was this beautiful little triad of description of what the Ten Commandments are. It's a curb, it's a mirror, and a guide. In other words, God gives us these Ten Commandments so that in that neighborhood when I come in with my selfishness well, that's a curb. What does the curb do? It keeps the car on the road, doesn't it? Curb says if you go sideways with your neighbor... He can call the police, and what do the police come and do? Put a stop to it. God has his way of keeping order in our society through the use of the law as a curb. You don't have to be a Christian to know that maybe bad things would happen if you get angry or you steal from your neighbor. God created that way. God be praised for that, a curb. Mirror is, well, you look into this mirror of the law and you think that you have it all together and you're not the one with the problem in the neighborhood. Well, you look into the mirror and there the mirror shows you exactly all the blemishes and the warts and the ugliness of who you are bringing that into the neighborhood. That leads you to confession and soul-searching and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Redeemed, covered by the blood of Christ Jesus, All of a sudden you begin to wonder, so if I am this now child of God, what does it look like then to be a neighbor? And that's where the law will come in, to exhort us and to encourage us and to guide us and to say such things as, don't curse or swear by God's name, but you know what? You get to do this as a child of God. You get to call upon it in every trouble, and you get to pray and praise and give thanks. Do that. Do that with God's name. Stop cursing by it. Praise him. Pray to him. Well, in this neighborhood, there are some rules and some consequences. But in the kingdom of God, when we're brought into that neighborhood, there's also some wonderful gifts. Justice is the first one. And justice, and you want justice. You don't want to live in a world where there isn't justice, right? Justice means you get what you deserve. You break the rule, there are consequences. You don't want to live in a place where there isn't justice. Well, God has his justice. You get what you deserve. God also gives us, though, gifts. Sometimes the pastor says, you know, as he begins, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, right? And the Lord Jesus Christ. You get the gifts of mercy. And if justice is you get what you deserve, mercy is what? Well, it's held back. You don't get. You don't get what you deserve. And then the one that only the church understands, and it's so beautiful, it's grace. And that's, you know what? You know what you deserve, but you don't get it. You get what you don't deserve. All the gifts of God in Christ Jesus. Now, so the neighborhood is perfect, right, as it was created in the world. Sin, we bring into it, you know, distort and um, corrupt this beautiful neighborhood. But God wants to do something. God wants to do something. And so what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus, at the right time, at the right place, Galatians says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, One translation, Eugene Peterson, in the paraphrase, the message says, God took on human flesh and moved into the neighborhood." That's not bad for our context and theme. Jesus moves into the neighborhood. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's take a look at it. It describes Jesus as our brother. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, and this is a quotation from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? This is speaking of Jesus. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. is that Somewhat troublesome, but yet comforting, right? It says there, everything is put under the feet of Jesus, but at the present time, we we don't what? We don't recognize it or see it that way. But what do we see? Verse 9, but we see Jesus. Who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, said by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Isn't that a powerful set of words? Both the one who makes men holy... And those who are made holy, which is us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And he says, quoting Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Verse 14 Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Those set of verses speak of good works, the good works of Jesus. There's two. Ways we could describe it. We could call it um, the active obedience of Christ, which means that He does something on our behalf. And then the passive obedience of Christ, which means He receives something on our behalf. So, first of all, as the text describes it, the active obedience. And both of these are for us. For us. So, according to the active obedience, what does Jesus, our brother, do? moves into the neighborhood. And as he lives in the neighborhood, what does he do? He lives a sinless life. All those things we talked about that made the neighborhood perfect, Jesus does those things. Lives a sinless life on our behalf. He loves perfectly, does he not? And he fully fulfills all of the law, all of the, man, all of the demands of God. So he actively does this. We can't do it. He does it. It's about his good works, abounding good works, perfect good works, active obedience. He does them on our behalf. Now, when he does that on our behalf, how is he received by his brothers? How does the neighborhood receive him? Well, Palm Sunday, they say, Hosanna. Good Friday, they say, crucify him. But he stands before Pilate, stands before Herod, declared innocent, right? Guiltless, faultless. So he's led to the cross an innocent man, and now he is declared guilty. Now this is his passive obedience then. He receives something. His obedience of receiving, though he knows no sin, He takes sin upon himself. Scripture is clear. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. We're pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Though he knew no sin, he becomes sin for us. So the adultery, the stealing... The murder, the slander, all of those are placed on Jesus. And they're taken off of us. They are placed on him. And so he now suffers and he dies on our behalf. And there is a justice wage that is demanded. And according to the scriptures, the wages of sin is death. And so actively he does something on our behalf. Fulfilling. Doing all the good works that we can do. And then at the cross he takes all of our bad works himself, There's this amazing, uh, it's called the great exchange, right? Great exchange. We give God all of our filthy works placed on Christ and in exchange he gives to us all of his good works. This salvation then is accomplished with the rising of Jesus from the dead, his ruling and reigning and his ascension. It is finished. It is done for us. We are declared then to be right in God's sight. Righteous, not because we come with our works before God, but rather we come before God with the good works of Jesus. So salvation is accomplished. And that good news is Christ, in that act, died for who? The good people? The bad people? All people? Well, all people, right? Good news is salvation is accomplished. And this is the message of grace and the message of the gospel it's for the world. Now, not all of the world believes that, do they? That salvation then needs to be applied so that each one of us in this room this evening says, yes, it was for the world, but you know what? It's for, for me. For me. And that's received, and that's even the gift of the Holy Spirit to us, the gift of faith which clings to and trusts in the good works of God. Jesus, Isn't that what John 3.16 really means? For God so loved the world. It's accomplished for the whole world. That whoever believes in him, for me, we say. Faith is a for me. Christ died for me. Will not perish, but have eternal life. For it is by grace, back to Ephesians 2. For it is by grace, then you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the... Gift, right? Gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus now to do what? To good works. Good tree, when it's made a good tree, will produce good fruit. So we got the neighborhood. Jesus moves into the neighborhood. So what makes good neighbors in this neighborhood? Repentance. And forgiveness of sins repentance and forgiveness of sins in this neighborhood where I bring my selfishness and you bring your selfishness and our pride and our arrogance what makes good neighbors out of that conflict by the Holy Spirit we being so convicted that we say I'm sorry to one another and we receive the forgiveness of sins given in Christ for one another and now together Now together we serve in the kingdom and we serve one another. So we then begin to ask questions. But we ask the right questions. The question in this new neighborhood is not, who is my neighbor? But rather, what does it mean to be a neighbor? If you ever read the parable of the Good Samaritan, the teacher of the law leads in with, well, uh, so who is my neighbor? He's asking the wrong question. See, when you have, who is my neighbor, what, do you, what are you going to do? You get to pick and choose. Well, I like you, but I don't like you. And, well, you can be my neighbor, but, I, you know, we're at odds. I don't want to be your neighbor. The scriptures never, ever give you the option of choosing your neighbor, do they? So rather, the question in that parable is, what does it mean, then, to be the neighbor? What does it mean to be the neighbor? We're saved by grace through faith. Then through faith, we receive the good works of Christ. But then flowing from faith, we're called to do the works of Christ. We receive the works of Christ. And then through faith, we're empowered to do the works of Christ. Martin Luther wrote some beautiful words. And I think it summarizes this understanding of Um, receiving the works of Christ and then doing the works. He says this, Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy and joyful and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures, and the Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith. My African friends, sin when I serve them, I ask them, what do you have when you have the forgiveness of sins? And they smile and they say, when you have the forgiveness of sins, you have everything. Isn't that what that is? Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace that makes you happy and joyful and bold in your relationship. And the Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith. So what do you have when God gives to you the forgiveness of sins? You have everything. Now, when you have everything, there's a result to that. Because of it, you freely and willingly and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things, love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. Thus, it is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. When you are so overjoyed with the lavished grace of God in Christ upon you, knowing what injustice you deserve, but receiving all the works of Christ in grace, it's impossible then to separate the faith and the works. In fact, there's this kind of giddiness to it, isn't there? I mean, because of it, you freely and willingly and joyfully do good to everyone and serve everyone and suffer all kinds of things and love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. Now that in itself is a, is a miracle, isn't it? I mean, you look at your life and your situation and you say, boy, the neighborhood's not so good. Uh, I don't know if I could kind of take some of these things willingly and joyfully. Well, again, you and I are dead in our transgressions, unable to do that. But that's why Christ makes us alive. So then what do these good works look like? What do they practically look like? During the period of the Reformation, the thought was, in order to do good works, you had to do special stuff, special things that other people weren't willing to do, like join holy orders, you know, become a nun or a priest, or go on pilgrimages. And so all these good works then were manufactured in the mind. They sounded spiritual, but they had no reference point at all. And even if you were to do good things apart from faith, the scriptures say that those things are not even considered as good works. They may be good things, but they're not good works. Good works flow out of living, active faith in Christ. So what do these good works then look like? Well, let's go back to the Ten Commandments. You define all good works with one word. What is it? Love. We break it down. Love for God. Love for neighbor. You want to break that down a little bit more? The Ten Commandments. Now this is where the beauty of your heritage as a Lutheran uh, comes into play. When you had to learn these meanings to the Ten Commandments from Luther's small catechism, you say, oh, why am I learning that? Well, now now it becomes apparent. Because Luther does this beautiful thing in his Ten Commandments. He gives them to the family and says, let me explain to you what you're not supposed to do. Let me explain to you what... God calls you to do. So you should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Pretty clear, right? Well, second commandment. Don't curse, swear, use witchcraft, lie, or deceive by his name. But do what? Call upon in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. What does the Sabbath day look like? Well, don't despise preaching in his word, but gladly hear and learn it. Becoming pretty clear as to what those good works look like. Well, works to the neighbor. Honor father and mother. Well, don't despise your parents and masters. Don't provoke them to anger, but rather give them honor. Hold them in love and esteem. Fifth commandment, don't kill. You know, don't hurt nor harm your neighbor in his body, but help and befriend him in every bodily need. Live a pure and decent life, not only your thoughts and your words, uh, but in action. Don't steal, don't take things from your neighbor, but rather help him to keep his possessions and to protect them. Don't defame your neighbor. Don't you know deceive, speak falsely about your neighbor neighbor, but rather put the best construction on everything. Do you have your hands full of good works with what I just said? You could spend the rest of your life just living out of those and be guaranteed that these are the things that God so desires. when we do them out of faith. So, you ask them questions. Who am I then in the kingdom? Where am I in the kingdom? What am I to do in the kingdom? In other words, what's your neighborhood look like? Where has God placed you? What has he called you to do? What's your office Bigger words are like this. If you take your station in life and the location that God has placed you, the Reformation word then is that's your vocation, your vocal, your calling. Maybe some of you are wondering, what's my calling in life? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Who are you? What's your station? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a parent? Are you an employee? Are you an employer? Are you a pastor? Are you a teacher? Are you called to a place of authority? Who are you? That's your station. And then where has God placed you in that station specifically? Troy? Sterling Heights? United States? Africa? Where in the world has God placed you? You put those two together, and you know what you have? That's your calling. That's your calling. And wherever God has placed you then, he says, the good works of Christ are upon you, And now in that place, your hands are full of good works toward God and toward your neighbor. So practically, let's answer some of these questions as we close. And we'll use it as a time of confession, but also as a way to move ourselves toward the reception of all the gifts of Christ. When things get a little bit too complex in life, I try to simplify them as best I can. And simply to say something like this, okay, there's many things swirling around, but I can be certain of this. I am Paul. And Paul has moved into the neighborhood and brought his sin along with him and his selfishness, and he's caused a lot of problems. And so Paul is a sinner, and he has harmed others, and he has also not loved God. But that's not all Paul is because Paul was brought to the baptismal font, and in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he was given the gift, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of faith. And so, though Paul is a sinner, what is also Paul? A saint. Now, the sinner doesn't go away when Paul became a saint, but they're in conflict with one another, aren't they? They go at it. So Paul, sinner, and saint. Paul's also a husband. Paul's a father. Paul's one who is a son. He's a brother. He's a friend. Paul is a pastor. And locationally, Paul may live in Sterling Heights and serve in Troy, but God may take him to different places. Next month, in the month of December, I'll be in Africa. That's my location for a month. I'll have a calling, a vocation, a station, as well as a, a placement. Sinner, saint, living in those stations of life, in that specific location, orchestrated, ordained by God, whether you like it or not, that's where God has placed you. And so we ask the question Lord, what are you? What are you willing for me to do within? That station of life and that location. And then that's my calling. That's where the good works prepared for me will flow out of. By the way, the verse says, prepared for you in advance before the creation of the world. You think, God, if he understood that these good works were before the creation of the world, has a pretty good idea about where you're at right now and what he desires to use you for. You can answer some of these things. I am what? You fill in the blanks. You work it through the process. We're going to use the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever thought about them this way, but use the Ten Commandments as opportunity to show and to acknowledge that you have been brought into this wonderful neighborhood that God has created, and you have caused problems. Problems in the neighborhood. And for you to own them. For you to run... Your life through those commandments as a mirror, and to own up to it and say, you know what, first commandment, I haven't, I haven't lived a life as if, you know, uh, God was only. I had other gods. I ran to other things. My heart wandered and strayed. I trusted in my own strength. I haven't had other gods. Well, you look in the mirror. It will reveal that pretty quickly, won't it? Lord, I want to do better. I desire to have only you as God. Lord, change me. How about keeping God's name holy? In your life, in your speech, call upon every trouble, pray praise. Have we despised the word of God? I mean, how many Bibles do we have in our households, right? And you can get them on your phone. Have we spent actually the time to open them up and to study and to give our lives to it? Or have we despised the word of God, not receiving his gifts? How about with our relationships, despising God's natural order and authority within the family, and then that flowing out into the order of society? How about, maybe we haven't killed anybody, but is there anger, or is there rage, or is there bitterness that is seething How about, have we lost the capacity to blush in our own life? Things that are pure and decent, God has given to us as gifts, and we have just trampled over them and just lost even the capacity to blush over them. How about our possessions? Are we possessed by them? Or do we see them as gifts that God has given to us to use to serve others? Have we thought, you know what, maybe a way to get really strong in our own reputation is by tearing down the reputation of another. So have I built myself up in some way by tearing another down or not stepped in to protect reputation? And finally, is there this cancer eating away in each of our souls coveting so envious because God is so generous to somebody else. Well, that's what we bring into the neighborhood, right? And so we can say, I'm Paul, and I'm a sinner, and that describes me pretty well, but I also am pleading for the works of Christ to come upon me and to change me and to live in me in such a way that I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in You take some quiet moments for reflection. We'll then confess our sins together and words will be on the side screen. It'll be a general confession. The neighborhood together, will acknowledge all of our problems together, but then we'll hear the good news of forgiveness and close in a time of worship. You take some quiet moments and then I'll lead you in a general confession. We confess together. Most merciful God, Renew us, lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Almighty God, in his mercy, has given his Son to die for you and for his sake forgives you all of your sins. So, as a called and ordained servant of Christ by his authority, I therefore forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we receive that by saying this word, Amen. Amen.